Okay, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Pradyumna Prasad about the book Hirohito and the Making of Modern Japan by Herbert P. Fix. Pradyu is an incredibly smart young guy. He has a blog and a podcast called Bread and Goods, which you can find at breadandgoods.substack.com. Just some context, in the last quarter of the conversation, we were discussing our budding blogs and podcasts, and that discussion was recorded before the crazy events of the last week or two happened. Um, but, you know, it might give you some interesting window into how we were thinking about these projects of ours before, you know, the crazy shit started happening. Um, but yeah, I hope you enjoy and thanks for watching. Cool. All right. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Pradyumna Prasad. Um, who is who recently graduated high school in uh, Singapore, and now he just received an Emergent Ventures grant very recently uh, to continue work on his um, great podcast and blog. Excellent, excellent. So yeah, you you got the Emergent Ventures grant. What are your plans? What are you, what are you doing? Uh, what I'm gonna do with it? I at the moment I'm working on a bunch of stuff on reserve currencies. It was it, it has been an obsession of mine for a very long time. So uh, it's. All the all the reading is going to end up in writing at some point. Uh, on the longer term, I want to have a blog where I can answer every single economic history question or economics question I don't know the answer to, and nobody else has the answer to. I can answer it here. So uh, pretty much going to be a mini encyclopedia of questions I'm interested in. Excellent, excellent. Okay, yeah, I'm looking forward to it to produce. And for the time being, today we're discussing uh, this book you recommended to me, uh, Hirohito and the Making of Modern Japan by Herbert right. P. Bix. Um, and so just to give a little bit of context, well, actually, so let's just say who Hirohito was, right? He was the Japanese emperor. Um, right. He was the he was the third emperor after the after after I mean, third emperor after the uh, Meiji Restoration. He was the first one to see Japan as an international power. He was the first and last one to handle it as an international power. And yeah, Hirohito was a guy responsible for a lot of stuff that happened in East Asia across the mid uh, 20th century. Right, in including, by the way, World War II, right? Um, right. So he, he was a Japanese emperor during World War II. And there's, uh, there's a big controversy around Hirohito because um, he, he was in charge of Japan during the time that Japan invaded China and committed all of the atrocities mm. that mm -hmm. we know uh, we know happened there, uh, including the rape of Nanping. And he was also the Japanese emperor during World War II, during Pearl Harbor, obviously. So the book takes a very critical stance on Hirohito. It claims that Hirohito could have um, stopped or at least uh, in many ways dulled these atrocities. Uh, he had that authority. Um, the opposite view, I guess, which is the conventional view, is that Hirohito was kind of a constitutional monarch, much like a British monarch, and that he didn't really have the authority to intervene in politics. And then to the extent that he did, he did his utmost to like lessen the impacts of the war, for example, by surrendering in 1945. Uh, so now, what were your overall impressions of the book, of how well he did defending the thesis that Hirohito should have been tried as a war criminal? Um, yeah, no, so. I think I think uh, the book sort of goes like a synthesis of these two. It says that Hirohito was a constitutional monarch, but he was a constitutional monarch because he chose to be a constitutional monarch. So yeah, he he it it 
in theory, on paper, he couldn't do it. It's, 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 it's one of those things where um, Japanese constitutional law wasn't very well done. I mean, it, it, for any uh, anocracy, constitutional law isn't well done, and much more so for Japan. But uh, Hirohito could have done something he did not. He chose to be a constitutional monarch. So anyways, the book was, was well written towards the end, poorly written towards the, the start. I think there was, the difference between a collection of events and a biography is a story, and there was no story at the start. So I think that book could have been much improved. But I also think that um, it's very hard to find people who read through original language sources, in this case, Japanese, and to a, small, to a very small extent, Chinese and English, and then put it into English. So I think uh, the author deserves a lot of commendation for that. Okay, excellent. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I agree. The most interesting part about the beginning, and I agree, it was pretty dull. Um, was uh, the author talking about how much the Hirohito was influenced by his grandfather Meiji? Um, so you know, like it, 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 Meiji was the emperor during the time where Japan rapidly, rapidly, rapidly industrialized, and kind of became a went from being a, a kind of like a a semi-colonized uh, power to becoming a colonial power itself, uh, you know, ha having colonies in Korea and Taiwan under Meiji. Um, so it it's very interesting. You know, I, I have uh, friends who kind of think that, uh, I have one friend who thinks that many of the differences you see between countries can be explained uh, largely by genetic differences. And I, I think one of the strongest like counter-arguments to that is just like how different Jap Japan has been over like the last 150 years, like how many different evolutions it's gone through. And whenever you see these stories of rapid industrialization, it's just very, it, it, like it, it, you, you can kind of understand how it can happen over many hundreds of years, how it happens in the case of Japan in, during the major restoration so fast, it, it, it kind of stuns me. So I, I know you've been doing a lot of reading on Chinese industrialization as well, as well as like uh, industrialization in many, uh, rapid industrialization in many other East Asian countries. Can you explain what happened during the major restoration? Like how did they get everything up and running um, so fast? Right. So the main difference between the pre-1868 Japan, which was the worst called the Tokugawa Shogunate and the Meiji uh, and the Meiji era, was that Japan had a lot more centralized power. There was one king running the place instead of feudal lords all over. Japan was a lot more open to the rest of the world. You know, uh, there was the death penalty for for Japanese who interacted outside of Japan during the Tokugawa Shogunate. Very very uh, brutal in today's words. And um, Japan basically did what, what would be called the holy trinity of industrialization. It had open labor markets, government investment, and basically allowed foreign capital to come in. And so you, across East Asia and, and, and across parts of Africa, like Botswana and to a smaller extent, South Africa and Nigeria, the best way to get rich historically for countries when they're already other uh, rich countries is to uh, take all capital from the from the rich countries, copy their their innovations, and uh, use all their knowledge on how to get rich to get rich yourself, and then start to slowly push away on their hegemony. And the results of it are somewhat mixed. The the U.S. did okayish well, Japan didn't do well, and we're seeing it with China now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, is there any particular reason it happened first in uh, Japan as far as East Asian countries go? I mean, okay, that is, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a very good um, source on this because I try, try to avoid the the historic 
cliffy off this because it's 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 full of too many uh, details. Historians haven't done a very good job of it. But my take on it is that uh, I think it's very much elite dependent, as in the uh, first is that the Japanese elite didn't have as much of a rent seeking class as the Chinese elite did, you know, in, in China, because the country was so big, they, they invented a whole, whole bureaucracy to administrate. The problem was you end up leaving too much power to the people in between you and the uh, general public. So they, they en en ended up being sort of uh, the barriers to modernizing and opening up. But uh, in Japan, that was less so. The second thing is Japan already had a small tradition of worshiping the emperor's god and became politically convenient for the shogunate to now re-emerge. They actually had a small civil war, and the, it, it so happened, I mean, this is just an, an accident of luck that the uh, winners of the civil war happened to be the ones who wanted to open up and make Japan great again. So uh, one part is that. The second thing is being a small island nation really um, makes you see the realities of life much easier. One explanation for why small countries would have have better economic policy than large countries is that if you're a small country, the um, the realities of life are very often more in your face. So when Japanese elites saw the uh, saw the American ships coming, they're like, "Whoops, you know, we can't we can't afford to be irrational anymore about it," and they were forced to modernize. Compare that to a lost to a lot of East Asia where they uh, either could live in their own alternate uh, reality, for example, Indian kings and, and the Qing dynasty in China, you know, the Japanese were just forced to deal with reality a lot faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I also read on your recommendation, Lee Kuan Yew's uh, biography. And the, uh, yeah, so this is not the book we're discussing now. So, but just to, just to tie it uh, with this, it was really interesting to read him just go over all the different issues Singapore had to deal with at when it got started. Like, you know, the, the fact that it had hostile neighbors, the fact that yeah. basically it was going to lose like 25% of the GDP once the British left uh, for yeah. their you know, naval bases. And it, it, there's something about the fact that you're just like on an island, I, you know, open to any sort of, uh, open to all the elements basically that I, I guess concentrates the mind. Exactly. A very underrated measure of leader competence is how close to reality are you and you see it like to skip to 2022 today right you saw it over the last two years where leaders were more in touch with reality respond faster to covid got better vaccines uh tightened up faster but also opened up faster so basically the the the, the japanese elite in the 1860s was a lot more in touch with reality than other countries and so they knew they were forced to to open up. And the next part of it was they 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 opened up and they and they and, and they opened up quick quick. They got American uh, industries to come set up in Japan, and they basically a lot of the history of of of, of economic development is also the history of intellectual piracy. It just just uh, had had what is euphemistically called forced technology transfers, so they could learn how to make all the that the Americans had. And by around the 1910s and 1920s, they got rich enough to project their power onto the rest of East Asia. By 1905, they fought a war with Russia. And then in, you know, in 1950, around the same time, they, they invaded China, and then later they invaded China again. So they just didn't deal with the uh, sudden transition from being a power that was coerced by the Americans by a, to a power 
coercing other countries. Right. Now, um, I mean, there's a way you can view this where, I don't know, if you have that kind of transition happen slowly in a country, you can have norms evolve from, um, I, I don't know how to put this in a way that's not uh, derogatory, but norms that are very kind of brutish and very much geared towards like uh, traditional norms of war, which is like, you destroy the enemy, you pillage and you loot, uh, which is like, which might make sense if you can like loot a village, right? But when you're talking about the capacity of in, you know, modernist or a war and you can do that to like millions of people that can become extremely brutal and i, I don't know it seems like in the west uh, once industrialization happened there was like enough time for things to simmer down before these countries were introduced to the worst weapons and I, you, you could argue that the world wars are a counterexample but even still um on the on the um on the eastern theaters uh the, sorry i mean the, the western theater the 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 uh, there there just weren't the kind of atrocities that you saw the Japanese uh, make in the Pacific Theater and in China. So, uh, like one of the downsides of rapid industrialization is your cultural norms don't catch up to your technology, and so you have like almost these these people who have like uh, very very traditional norms around war with very modern weapons, and it gets pretty scary. And a good of scholar stage is a very good essay on honor culture versus respect versus justice I'm, I'm paraphrasing here but overall less industrialized societies have strong patriarchal cultures because uh for better or worse it's the men who, who end up doing the work and they got more of the respect and there's, there's a lot of d debate and literature about it but that's more or less my understanding of it right so you, you're right that the norms don't catch up but i think you're wrong that even in the West, the norms didn't catch up for a long time, right? Uh, think of colonialism. Only very, very few people in the House of Commons thought they should impeach Warren Hastings for his atrocities in uh, East India to the to the East India Company. So obviously, so it's it's not only in Japan that that norms didn't catch up. It's almost everywhere that norms didn't catch up. Norms take a lot lot of time to catch up. And in Japan, well, the first thing is that. The Japan you see today is mostly is is artificial in the sense that it is a, it is an artifact of America of the of the Americans jumping in and putting a gun to the Japanese cabinet and saying you better uh, accept the constitution we make and some parts of the Japanese left really liked it some parts didn't and but it they basically forged a coalition of of, of only people who who liked it and old people and uh, people from the old regime willing to accept the new uh, reality so norms can change quick but they but when they do they change with the battle of a gun not by some internal organic process ask your question of why was there so much atrocity you you are correct in saying that norms didn't change but i also think that public choice theory is what explains a lot of uh japanese war crimes across the uh 1900s i mean the entire early 20th century right the uh, my entire understanding of the book was that it could have been written by any public choice theorist and been and would have ended up, ended up the same so let's think of it this way the japanese army was powerful historically from the 1860s they fought a war in 1905 they were always scared in soviet union after when after it was formed it was going to invade them as historical vengeance also because it was just a lot better run than the tallest russia the problem was the depression hit and then the army and navy got mad that their that their spending was cut. So they just kept inventing problems in East Asia for them to have their budget increased. And 
uh, some part of inventing problems involves in uh, involves lying about them. All 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 large bureaucracies exaggerate their problems, but the army took the more extreme step of creating problems itself. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then like he's like, uh, we we created this mess and we need money to solve it, or else you're going to die. And then the, the Japanese government was weak enough to give them money and uh got drawn into world war ii <laughs> yeah so l l let me just um uh, let me just like fill in the details for the audience so in 1931 um uh, in in a japanese controlled manchuria the japanese military stages a sort of attack on uh one of their railroads if i remember, uh, if I remember correctly and it's like pretty obvious it's staged by the military it's not even that big of a attack um or sorry it's staged by the japanese military and it it, it doesn't cause major damage but the military then uses that justification to invade um, the rest of China without permission from the emperor or with the rest of the civilian government. But yeah, so basically uh, what you have, uh, and then so public choice here comes in because you have like these uh, uh, fa uh, political factions in Japan who are like trying to control Japanese policy, not in the best interest of Japan itself, but because of what they're, uh, what is in the best interest of themselves as a faction. Um, in fact, I interviewed Richard Hanania recently on my podcast, and as you know, he has a book out called uh, Public, Choice, uh, Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, where it makes exactly right. this point, where he, uh, he's, ar he's arguing that the unitary actor model does not apply to nation states uh, because they're very influenced by these sorts of um, factions and individuals and special interest groups, like, for example, the military, in, um, uh, the, the military and then specifically the imperial way faction. In Japan, but so there's many examples of this where like um, uh, uh, army officers just like killed the prime minister at one point, and I, I think it was 1936. And when they go to trial, they just say, "Yeah, we did this for because we're like loyal to the emperor." And the prime minister was, you know, he he wasn't nationalistic enough, and they get like very light sentences. Um, you, so you 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 know, it's called the government by assassination. Uh, what, what the government was like at this time. I agree. A few things here, right? The first thing is that Japan had a very unique constitutional model, as far as it could be called a constitutional model. It was just, it was just, it was just ad hoc. As you know, a big problem in people's understanding of history is that they don't, they just don't realize that a lot of times big events are just some guy deciding things, and so a lot of these things end, end up exactly as you would expect some guy who ended up deciding them. And so the big problem here is that well, the way the the, the Japanese constitution was designed was that. The civilian government, more I mean, elected by by men with property. I don't remember the exact details. They had control only uh, over every part of the government except the military. And most countries, like in the U.S., you have a requirement that uh, all defense secretaries should not have served in the military, or if they have served, they have, they have, there has to be some some I think a five year or seven year gap to ensure that you have civilian control on the military, right? Wait, but secretaries can't have served in the... Uh... No, no, no. You have to have a, a five-year gap or something, and if, and if you oh. don't meet that gap, you have to get a waiver from Congress. Okay, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that, yeah. Okay, okay? so that's to maintain civilian control on the military. And a, lo a lot of countries don't do very well on that, right? To go on sort of a tangent, Pakistan is, is one of those places where you have very poor civilian control on the military. So the military just keeps like doing stuff and the government is forced to react to it. Then, then in most Western democracies, it's, it's the other way around. The crazy president does something and the military is like, whoops, now we're, now we're in this war and we got to deal with it. In Japan, the problem was your army ministers were, were well, part of the army. They weren't representing the civilian government. They were representing the 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 army. Give an example. Is it 
the funny thing, the Indian ambassador, so in the 1960s, India was having a, um, it was uh, was having high tensions with, with China, which, which ended up in a war in 1962. I think it was VK Menon who was India's ambassador to China. And, you know, VK Menon came and told Nehru, you know, this happened, that happened, Chinese won this and Chinese won that. And Nehru asked him quite uh, annoyed, are, are you our um, ambassador to them or are you their ambassador to us? And it's the it's the it's the same problem with the army minister being part of the army. Is he representing the civilian government or the or the army? Nobody knows. And that led to a sort of uh, elite capture of the civilian government by the army. There's another great book. I I, I forgot the title, but it was discussed on 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 China Talk a lot. Um, and basically explains that the army took control of the entire civilian government basically said you got to prepare for total war why because we said so and they basically and uh, they reorganized the functions of government a lot to um to achieve this objective yeah yeah um there's uh there's like a pretty well-known quote about the pakistani um uh, military which can be applied equally as well to japan in this era which is that in most countries the government has a military in Pakistan, and I guess in this case, Japan, the the, the military has the government, right? Yeah, so, no, no. Uh, so th that's what's playing into here. And now the, the the claim of the author is that at various points where the military's power is growing and it's doing more and more audacious things, it's like directly contradicting the will of the civilian government. The, the civilian government says like, hey, what are you doing like invading these other parts of China? Like, you know, stop this. And the, the, the military leaders are just like, uh, yeah, fuck it, we're, we're going in. And so at this point, the um, um, uh, Bix is like uh, the author. He's like um, the emperor who's because uh, like he has a unique role here where he has such moral authority because the army is claiming to like in the U.S. It's not like if there was um, if there is a sort of like military coup, the, the um, assuming the president's not in favor of it, the government, the army military is not going to be like we're doing this in the name of the president. Right. Uh, whereas in Japan, it was like, well, we, we, for the glory of the emperor and the empire, we're, you know, we're going to invade. So the, the Bix is like, yeah, he could have just been like, yeah, this is not in my name, right? And he doesn't do that. Yeah. He, he issues like these very mild, if at all, condemnations um, whenever these kinds of things happen. And so they keep escalating and escalating. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, so a few, a few things about that, right? So, it is, so a lot of it... Um, there's a question in in waiting about history is how much of it is contingent on uh, you know structural forces and how much of it is contingent on actual people and foreign policy is one of the three places of history where things are contingent on actual people and one of those actual people was Hirohito. The problem with Hirohito was that even as a child he was very mild mannered. Uh, his tutors describe him as you know he wouldn't win win any debates. He was a very good public speaker and. The, the Japanese government and Japanese state are uh, very different than the Japanese government. Very concerned that the public support for the emperor was going down, so they went to so they went to to England to learn how England did it. And the problem was that Hirohito was not the, the right person for this job because the job demanded uh, a little closer to what a modern day politician's job demands: a lot of public opinion formation. A lot of, um, how do I put it, dealing with uh, various factions inside and, um, you know, uh, lying to a lot of people and, keep it, and, and keeping them uh, quiet. But Hirohito was just not politically suave enough to do it. And that was the, the clear problem here was that 
he didn't understand I mean, even if he understood he didn't I mean, he didn't understand clearly the level of impact he had and and and, and he had this uh, personal teams mindset of I we probably <laughs> linked to this he had this 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 personal teams mindset of like ah, it's not worth it let but then you know that's what led to his his downfall in the end to what extent was Hirohito responsible for this my my answer is um it depends on your definition of responsible could he have stopped it probably could he have lessened it definitely could he have led to uh, have it have lesser have it have a less stupid direction of the of the war right one of my biggest beliefs is that the entirety of japanese military strategy across uh, the world war was completely stupid they were shooting themselves in the head i'm going to i'm i'm, I'm going to go on a rant here if that's fine with you yeah please do okay so so basically, Japan was really, really scared of a war with the Soviet Union for obvious reasons. They're their largest neighbor, and they and they were get, and, and and they were getting richer and richer under Lenin and Stalin because you know uh, transformations from agriculture to industry has made every single country rich. Okay, the problem was Japan was smaller with lesser people, and obviously they would have lesser ammunition and military power during a war. So Japanese war planning said, okay, we're going to plan for a war with the Soviet Union. Naturally, if you're going to plan for a war with the Soviet Union, you should plan for a war with the Soviet Union. You should not plan for a war with China or with the Philippines or with America or with uh, Malaya, right? But what they did in the 1930s was they said, oh, we have this and public choice problems forced them into, into entering um, uh, China. And so, you know, the, the Japanese army wanted to be relevant, the Japanese Navy wanted to be relevant. They just kept like nudging, provoking the, the Chinese into attacking them. So what the original plan was, we will use our assets in Manchuria to fight the Soviet Union. And we need Korea, and we need Manchuria because to protect, to protect our assets in Korea. A sort of a, uh, early 20th century version of domino theory. And then they, yeah. they did that. Oh, so sorry, but, just sure uh, for the audience, uh, Manchuria is this region in China and like the uh, the northeast. That's yeah, like in the northeast of China. Korea. Yeah, yeah, that, Korea. Uh, yeah, that borders Korea. Yeah, that Japan needed. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 very rich in iron and minerals and yep. so on. And the initial plan was that they would use their resources in Manchuria for doing it. Now, why did, did they want to use their resources in Manchuria in general? The answer is that uh, Japanese uh, military planners saw this. Um, the model they built their government was the government did the entire thing, including trade policy and everything, was Imperial Germany. The problem was Imperial Germany lost World War One. So they did this entire sort of like self-reflection period. Why did they lose World War One? The answer was Imperial Germany really never had the resources to win World War One. They were blockaded by the by the British and so on, right? So their answer was we're gonna get Manchuria and we're gonna use it said so any future wars we don't we, we don't lose it. Finally, uh, if you don't want to lose any future wars, a good way of not losing wars is to not get into ones you can't win. And so, but they didn't do that. They, they just walked into Japan. That was mistake number one. The problem with walking into 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 China in the 1930s, I said Japan earlier, my bad. Yeah. Problem with with walking into China in the 1930s is that it's a it's a war that pisses off a lot of people. Right. So uh, here, the Minister of Modern Japan mentions it. The Americans were quite outraged by it because the, it was the uh, what would be called the neutral China principle. All colonial powers would be completely uh, fair in, in in using Chinese resources for their own industrialization. You know, a very, <laughs> a very morally poor thing to say, but that, that that's how morality was back then. Right? Whatever, okay? 
And so the point was this pissed off the 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 Americans and the British and the French and and you know that it's 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 useful to have powerful friends, especially when when your end goal is world domination, right? So they did that. And then the problem is you can't really uh Canada doesn't have much oil, Japan doesn't have much oil, and, and all that oil was imported from the US. All their atrocities in China led to very bad publicity in the in the US, you know. American public opinion on China, especially because the answer historically for governments has been don't pitch off don't piss off the church too much. And Japanese governments uh, didn't know about that because well they were their version of the church. But the Japanese at atrocities in East China led to um, American missionaries in China going to America and reporting it to the American public. The American public got very outraged by it. So by the 1930s, you had this sort of like mini movement among the more religious people saying, we should not have American resources in, uh, involved in the Japanese pillage of China. And so there was a lot of domestic pressure on the American end trying to uh, stop them. But Japan, so mistake number two was pissing off the um, Americans, right? The problem with pissing off the, the Americans almost all the time is that almost all of Japanese oil imports came from America, right? Saudi Arabia wasn't a thing back then. So all of, uh, all of Japanese oil imports came from America. Like, it's like 97% or something like that. Yeah, yeah, like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost in the, literally. Yeah, in, in, the, in the high 90s. And they and it sort of like wanted to make um, synthetic oil, but that didn't didn't work very well. The history of oil of like countries thinking they can they can make their own oil is kind of funny because Deng Xiaoping almost like uh, thirty for forty years after this thing uh, told his uh, cabinet that China would finance its industrialization because it had some oil plants, and it kind of didn't work out because you know it takes a lot of resources to make oil, which China didn't have, and Japan doesn't didn't have it at that point in time. Anyways, that aside, that that aside aside, you basically had mistake number uh, two was pissing off the the U.S. And so Hirohito, you know, to what extent was the emperor responsible for this? I don't. I, here's where I will put my structural hat on and, and tell you that Hirohito was not prepared to deal with these challenges. The first thing was uh, no country had ever dealt with total war before in East Asia, right? Wars used to happen in East Asia, obviously, but there was sort of like the European wars before World War One. You send a few people to fight and you, and you fight around, you can lose, well, it sucks. But you never mobilize your, your, your entire economy. The very new type of war, which Hirohito wasn't didn't know of he, you you could model it but I, the guy wasn't kind of smart you know he he, he wasn't the, the sharpest tool in the in the in the shed so he really wasn't prepared to model this this sort of war huh i mean but wasn't the typing rebellion like one of the deadliest things in history or something like that yeah it seems like a civil but war but it's a it's a civil war but the difference between a conventional war and and a civil war is that in a conventional war the, the, the Taiping Rebellion didn't have much organization. It was just people going and killing each other. There, there was no ammunition factory that said, this month we're going to make X thousand guns because the soldiers need, need, need to fight it. Compare that to World War II where, you know, you had the prices, you had a bunch of lots of economic planning in the, in the U.S. It's very successfully managed to say, we, we, we have to make these many guns and these many bombs to fight the Germans and Japanese, right? But that sort of thing was very underdeveloped. In... Uh, a very different aside, a, a big problem with having your, um, in, in, in not having high level manufacturing like America had with, with automobiles is that you don't 
in wartime, what is useful is being able to coordinate large amounts of resources to their desired purpose. And people like people make the joke that uh, that Amazon and Walmart essentially plan economies, and it's something off a joke because in World War II, when the U.S. needed central planning, it it didn't. It didn't. It, it didn't go to the Department of Commerce. It went to it went to Ford and GM and said, "We have uh, like like a five times bigger version of you, and we need your managers to run this because you you're the only people who know how to." But Japan didn't have that sort of experience. The, the Japanese planning board, you know, it talks about the biggest problems: supplies didn't come, and and like, is he really responsible for this? And uh, he didn't. He, in in the end, the the emperor is responsible. But but also because. The guy couldn't do it. He, he didn't have the tools to do it. And the reasons for that are, are, are much deeper than Hirohito himself. It's that if you read through the first part of the book, Hirohito didn't have much of an education in, in economics or science or, 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 I mean, science to a small extent because uh, it was considered a, a, a noble subject but, or uh, engineering, right? If you if you ask him a question, which uh, the answer, to which I learned in seventh grade, how do you expect iron? He probably wouldn't know it. He, 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 he wouldn't be able to think to model through those things. So the problem was no economy was prepared for a total war because they'd never done it before. But Japan was the first country to say, yeah, let's do it. And they paid the price for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so you, you bring up the uh, you you bring up pissing up America. I think uh, so. Uh, we we picked this war before the Ukraine. Uh, we picked this book before the Ukraine thing happened. But people mm -hmm. have been making this analogy, so we might as well talk about it. So a as you know, that people have been making this analogy between Ukraine today, the situation in Ukraine today, and what was happening with uh, China and Japan um, before World War II. So the idea is that uh, what happened with uh, Japan was. They were they, they invaded uh, China. They did all these atrocities. They invaded different parts of Indochina, um, and this pissed off America. So America embargoed um, iron, steel, copper, and most importantly, oil uh, exports to Japan. They froze uh, their assets in the U.S., which basically prevented them from buying oil. And the Japanese war machine required oil. So then, basically, Japan decided um, we're going to have to invade other parts of Indochina to get this oil. But to do that, we're going to need to. Um, we're going to need to invade in uh, America's sphere of influence, like places like uh, the Philippines. And to do that, we're probably going to first need to disable uh, America's ability to wage war in the Pacific. And to do that, we're going to add a, a bomber of harbor. So the analogy goes that uh, what we're doing with Russia is similar in the sense that we're, you know, just, just as uh, Japan invaded China and we responded, uh, the U.S. responded back then, um, uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine and we're responding very strongly with sanctions now. And maybe Russia feels like it's going to become backed up in a corner and therefore it decides to launch like a conventional attack against, I don't know, NATO headquarters in Europe or something. And from there, you have an all out war. So what do you think of this analogy? Do you think it's uh, valid or applicable? Yeah, they'd be very stupid to do that. But historically, Putin's actions have, have been more stupider. So you can't, <laughs> you can't model him to your rational actor model. To what extent does the an analogy apply? Uh, to much less extent. The first thing is Russia can okay. I, I actually it does apply, but but in a different way. Uh, a lot Russia is dependent on the Western world in not in terms of oil. They have a lot of that themselves, but in terms of things like you know dentist shops, Russia have shut down because the crowns and bitches and the sort of stuff you need to do to make fillings are made in Germany and the and the U.S. They they very depend on the sort of like highly specialized small scale things and. You can't find that outside <laughs> outside the West. So yeah, 
Uh, are they going to have another war? I doubt. Are they going to escalate it? Base rate says very low. I'm going to go with slightly higher than a base rate, very low with small possibility. So does the an analogy apply? Probably not. Uh, Japan was a, was, a, was a militant country in the sense that the, you don't see the level of elite capture you had in Japan today in Russia, right? It's, it, it just didn't exist back then, uh, exist as it, as it is now. So that's your first problem. The second problem is Russia wants Ukraine and it knows through historical experience, right? Putin was your KGB lieutenant colonel. He, he knows that uh, what are the costs of a protracted uh, level of, uh, of military tension with the US? And it's very, very obvious to anyone watching here right now that if the EU decides to rearm and the US continues, just continues its current level of armament, I'm not even predicting a a level of armament towards the 1980s, right? Uh, they will overpower Russia in every single margin. So will he do that? I don't think so. But I think the, the main objective right now for Western policymakers should be uh, get Putin to save face and back out without, you know, pushing him into a corner. Are they going to push him, push him into a corner? I, I don't think so. It's going to be very bad for people living in Russia now. But he, so far, he's not as stupid as to go and invade uh, Poland or Estonia or uh, literally go to the Netherlands and kill the NATO Secretary General. That'd be, that would suck a lot because, uh, well, it's World War Three. I'm stuck in Singapore, sort of halfway between the East and the, and the, and the West. Sucks for me. But I doubt the, the analogy applies because they're not captured enough by the military for the uh, rest of the government to care. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as far as uh, the stupidity goes, uh, you could continue the metaphor by saying that it was very stupid of Japan. People were saying this back then. I think, I think Hirohito said it himself, right? Which was um, like, listen, the, the U.S. has like a much higher GDP per capita. It even has a higher population. So um, that the idea that we're going to be able to win a war against them is, uh, it, you know, it, it's very stupid. And even if you like plan out everything, like we're going to have this offensive that in a few months, we're going to capture all these islands in the Pacific and we're going to destroy their Pacific fleet. Um, even then it's like, it, it, it was just such a, it was such a daring scheme. Like, it was, I, well, I don't know what it would have taken for the whole scheme to work, but the, you know, so like, I, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't think we should underestimate the stupidity of, uh, nation states. I was doing some work on this last week. Uh, allied GDP uh, was almost always greater than Axis G uh, GDP for the entire of the war, not counting colonies of either. And for the majority of the war, the Allies were had a GDP twice that of the Axis powers. <laughs> so they were very stupid. It would be like, how to, how, what's a good analogy here? It would be like Denmark going to war with UK. Like maybe you'll, uh, maybe you'll capture a bit of Scotland. But I swear to God, once the UK starts rearming, there's no way you can quit. Right. So you know, reading this because uh, you know I was looking at the same numbers uh, earlier today, or not the same, but those kinds of numbers. Uh, where like at the time, Japan had in 1935, it had a GDP per capita that was like uh, almost a tenth of the US's. And, you know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about in the future, like, let's it say- It wasn't a... a tenth, actually. I'm not sure where, where, where you got your numbers from, but I have a book uh, open called The Economic World 2. It's, it's around 40%. Yeah, oh, the US okay. was 
5,800 something. Japan was 2,700 something. Okay, that sounds way more reasonable. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, but and then it also had a bigger population, right? So it's a total bigger total. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, it's a, it's a GDP that matters here. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was thinking about this, um, like with the potential that in the future that if there's a conflict between the U.S. and China, um, you know, like the analogy is like, oh, we have we have a bigger current military, like we spend way more on uh, the military now than China does. But if it has a higher industrial capacity, if it has a higher GDP, um, maybe in like a, a year or like a couple of months of conflict, all, all the stuff you have so far is kind of useless or, you know, it, like it doesn't matter as much as your capacity yeah. as the India, no. uh, as I'm sorry, as as the U.S. had uh, d during the World War Two, to just like produce more stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. So to what extent would like that, I think the first thing is that in a short term conflict, you, you would have the U.S. outmatched China in, 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 in like every single thing, right? Not because of the U.S., but it's U.S. plus EU. And thing is, it's so if you told somebody in 1922 that 100 years later, the EU is like what we call Europe today is disarmed, they would laugh at you. This is historically not the norm for, for European countries to not spend illogical amounts of their uh, economy on defense, right? It's because like they they fight a lot and now they, they, they're fighting a lot again. So, it's a conflict-prone continent. So basically, I find that very, uh, like, the moment you attack the U.S., you are also uh, more or less attacking, with or without NATO, a lot of countries dependent on the U.S. So uh, a lot of those countries, so in a short-term conflict, you would obviously be depending on only American defense, because the only power ready to wage war in, like, uh, 15 minutes' time. But in a 15-month span, you would, uh, no other grouping of countries can match what the West has now, just because the West is technologically superior. So maybe in the time span of like six months to 12 months, you would see a lot of Chinese advances. But in the time span of uh, 12 months plus, it would be very quick for the West to rearm and, you know, because the West has a sense of competence here about 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 wars. All the wars that they fought on the Middle East were very far away, right? So, it's, uh, the moment it starts hitting you, right? The moment you have bombs flying on your head, you're like, it becomes a lot more real to people. So, uh, there's no question that you would have a similar scenario. Uh, UK plus EU, so US plus EU GDP is like 31 trillion and China plus Russia is, is like 40 trillion maybe? I don't know, I'm just, I'm just ballparking numbers here. But China plus Russia GDP is like maybe 30 trillion. I can guarantee you this 40 trillion is a lot more productive than this 30 trillion because a lot of it is just, you know, for all the chaos that the American economy goes through, the chaos makes it more productive. So you're gonna have, you have, you have a lot less ghosts cities and a lot less corruption on, on this end of the uh, new Cold War. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess one concern is, uh, I don't know how true this is, I just hear it from like the zeitgeist, is the idea that we, we don't have the industrial capacity that we used to, so the GDP is higher, but it's uh, the industrial capacity we, we've shipped elsewhere. Uh, I, I don't know how true that is. Um, I, I, I think that is, industrial capacity is overrated. Please, it's 2022. 20, First thing being, right, a lot of initial war is going to be very high tech. You've got to have underwater drones that like a, 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 what is an underwater uh, drone? <laughs> it's, it's 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 exactly what it sounds like. It's an autonomous vehicle that's underwater. It's like a you you take a drone that can swim. Okay. 
it's the real way conflict right and you have drones and you have a, a lot of uh satellite target like the satellites targeted for you and then you bomb them you using the, the the satellite imagery right initially in the war uh human intelligence is going to be very important and now there have been some pretty embarrassing parts for the u.s on this like in 2015 there was a China the Chinese hack of the DHS uh, employee database is very embarrassing because yeah and then you know a, a, a lot of CIA assets in China mysteriously disappeared in the years after that so uh sucks but I also think that the industrial capacity argument goes like this you know America's outsourced manufacturing to China if you have a war with China they're not going to sell to us and they won't be able to do it and my answer is uh this sort of like the story where you know the two guys running and there's there's a pair and and only one guy has to outrun the the other the first thing is the nice part of of being the largest consumer for your for your largest trading partner is if you cut your taps off mm-hmm. it will hurt you a little but it's going to hurt them a lot where they're going to get the resources to start to 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 reindustrialize again right the chinese uh, state run uh economy is not known for its efficiency okay the second thing is if we need to if the west needs to they could absolutely always rearm very very quickly that it is it is it is it, it will be painful right your software engineers who spend maybe 40 percent of their time working will be forced to work in some stupid factory that uh makes javelins but regardless of the annoyance of it it will it will happen okay Finally, Dan Wang has the best critique of this. He says that cloud apps don't don't win wars, and he's right about it. Semiconductors win wars, and the U.S. has the nice advantage of being the only and largest ally of Taiwan. And you know, thing with the U.S. is a lot of its economic potential is put into is stopped by by stupid regulations, zoning, nuclear regulations, and you know, there's there's, there's a whole Twitter universe dedicated to exposing them. I'm not yeah, going to spend time on those. The thing is, <laughs> once you get into the, once you have bobs dropping across London, it can be very obvious that these things have to go. So, you know, it's a, these kind of things are a luxury belief for Western countries. You can believe in it because, yeah, sucks these guys couldn't get a house in New York, but it's not materially harming us in a way that, that it's obvious to us now. I want to start becoming obvious, you know, no elected leader is going to listen to some, is going to listen to the people who are currently harming American or British or German uh, industrial cap- capacity. They're, they're going to say, uh, sucks about the pollution, but we've got a war to win. So it's, 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 it's going to rearm very, very quick. And we, one of the reasons I'm very optimistic about the future is that we have, we have a lot of spare capacity left like this because of stupid rules. And well, once we start removing those uh, stupid rules you you it's it's, it's just pshaw, rocket take off and you know uh, it's I'm, I'm being animated because it is going to be very animated like that people fundamentally underrate the benefit of like a liberal-ish democracy which is that you can change very quick and not blow up while while doing it a good historical example is that america had a lot of mess up early in world war ii right so there so during the phony war the phony war was this uh Kind of like lull in nineteen in the nineteen thirty nine or forty, can't remember in in uh, Europe where was, they were sort of fighting, but they sort of were, and it was sort of like a stalemate. This was called the phony war for that reason. And 
American the uh, uh, Congress didn't want America to get involved in because they were isolationists and they had some good reasons, right? And FDR wanted to. But once it became clear that American interests in Britain uh, were going to be harmed by it, even the most isolationist Congress members changed their mind because of overwhelming public support. So it is going to happen. And the thing is, people just, um, they're, they're, they're right to assume that uh, the U.S. doesn't have industrial capacity, but they're wrong to assume that it will never have industrial capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I know I'm right. That's that's okay. Huh? <laughs> I know I'm right. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you brought up earlier that you know we look at the failures of uh, we look at the failures of uh, uh, you know American military and Western military in the Middle East, and but you know but we weren't as seriously invested because it, it didn't directly threaten us. Uh, but, I mean, speaking of the Middle East, uh, you like the, our our occupation in Japan. Like Japan was a country with. Uh, 100 million people. It had a very serious and very like a very um, like very proper uh, prop, uh, you know like just a supremely convinced public uh, that was like su- supremely hardcore about the uh, ideology of uh, the uh, imperial way and stuff like that. And you know this public, um, you it, it didn't take that much at all for you know the western uh the the western occupation to be able to put in a liberal democratic constitution and basically just like turn around the entire trajectory of the country and whereas no. if you look at countries that are way weaker like you know um afghanistan has like like one uh, one 1000th of the gdp of america or something like that and we can't uh, we can't occupy it right so like what was it about japan uh, or about our military at the time that made it such a successful occupation. You could say, of course, one major factor is that we had Hirohito with somebody they viewed in such a, uh, almost as a deity. We had him basically surrendering and cooperating, and that counts for a lot. Um, but and no, you know, no, okay, that okay, also okay. explains yeah. why he wasn't tried as a war criminal afterwards. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But is there anything else? Like, what, 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 yeah, why no. was the occupation in Japan so successful? Okay, I. I, th- I thought a lot about this. There's a great book in this called Embracing Defeat, which you should read because it's about the exact thing. It's about Japan after World War II and how the Americans did. So why was Japan a lot more successful than Afghanistan? The first thing is um, stability is sort of like Lindy, you know. Once once you have stability under the, the relative stability again uh, under the imperial government, they just change the people at the top. Okay. You can't really compare it to Afghanistan because there was there was chaos before chaos after. You you aren't solving the, the root terms of chaos, which is like you you have ethnic tensions in Japan. The thing was there was a lot of st- uh, stability. People were, were really tired after war. After when Hirohito had his uh, surrender address, the concern among imperial household the the imperial household was that there would be protests ahead of the um, uh, outside the uh, palace. The problem was, I mean, like that was the most, in their view, that was the the optimal end. That people would be angry with them that they were at the end of the war. The thing was, there were no protests. A few people were 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 happy because the, the war ended. A few people were sad that that they lost. But the the Japanese public in general had a very very difficult war. Fun fact, Japanese GDP per capita in 1937 was only achieved back again in 1952. So you can imagine how bad the Japanese public had it. 
So in some sense, they were very much happier under the fact. Americans. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not a fun fact. fact. <laughs> it's an interesting fact. It's, it's, it's quite a sad one. They, and when the war was ending, right, we had large-scale looting of a Japanese uh, military supply because they knew food would be scarce for the next few months or so. And so you had army colonels and majors just stealing food. It was completely lawless for a few months till the American military police came and you know, sort of calmed things down. The, the, the American army in Japan was successful because even the Japanese government was like, yeah, we're going to get done with this. We're going to get back to making Japan great again, again. And uh, that was the most important thing. Also very interesting, not fun, but, but, but interesting. MacArthur spoke to Japanese. MacArthur, I, I don't think he addressed the Japanese public ever, okay? That's very rare. If you're an occupying force, they worked through the mechanisms of the previous Japanese government. So also interesting. Um, a lot of Japanese... So I think I made this joke on Twitter a while ago. Average Japanese political family. A grandfather was a war criminal, not executed because Hirohito uh, asked Mikado not to. Father was um, a finance minister in the 80s. Current kid is uh, uh, number five in the LDP leadership election. And like the answer is the elite of Japan was not changed after the war. It made it really easy, made it really convenient to continue. They had this, this mass hallucination that, oh no, the, uh, uh, what is it? I, 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 I'm blanking on the, on the guy's name. Yeah, Toji made us, made us do it and the, and the, uh, and the, and the army made us do it. It just continued with the old elite again, you know, it, it, it didn't change much. So you see a lot of these, like, it is also very interesting that elites don't change after revolution. It is not a well-appreciated fact, but after the, so this is great paper. Let me, let, let me find it. But it basically shows that the Chinese elite in 1980s when the country reformed was the same as the Chinese elite in 1920s when the country was having economic growth. And same thing with Japan in 1960s and 70s, the same uh, family connections made them, you know, they were, uh, were powerful again, right? The next thing is that America didn't really change another really big part of Japan. Japan was occupied, as in its formal structures were changed. But it would be you would be have to be a little crazy to call it a democracy till like 1990 or something. It was just uh, Bernard Hover has this great post about East Asian industrialization. I think it's a, it's a, it's on Medium. It's quite popular. And one part of it was uh, the Ministry of Industry and Trade, MIT. I I, I forgot that um their their the full form. And their policies were basically rubber stamped by the lower house of the of the Diet. And you know, he's like, was, there wasn't much difference between those guys and the Soviets up north. So yeah, Japan was a democracy, but it was a democracy. It didn't, it didn't change much. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the fact that the elite to begin with was, I guess, open to Western ideas. Uh, it kind of raises the question of why this elite, where, where, where was this elite during the 1930s and the 1940s? Many of them were suppressed. The first Japanese Prime Minister of World War II, I'm blanking on his name again, but like he was a left-wing leader and, you know, he's basically one of those, and we, we shouldn't war, we shouldn't have war. The Japanese equivalent of the girl offering the flower to the American police guy during the Vietnam War. And those guys were obviously suppressed because it was inconvenient for them. But the 
a, a lot of the a lot of the Japanese left. But also very interesting, the Japanese Communist Party welcomed the American occupation. So <laughs> yeah, so like, they were seen as the antithesis of this. But uh, Article Nine of Japanese Constitution, which referred to listeners who don't know, it says that Japan can't rearm again. Roughly, right? It says it says that the car uh, the, the Japanese state uh, gives up war as a means of of, of policy. So. That basically like guarantees, not guarantees, but uh, gives the gave the uh, new elite a good excuse to stop fighting, to, to stop with that. But the the problem is, where were those people? That ideology is fake. It just what it just what helped them to to, to to get them into power. So now it's if pacifism helped them get into power, I guarantee you, Hideki uh, Toji would have would have become mother. Teresa. That 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 that's that's not the the the, the real problem. I don't think many of them really believed in what they in what they did, given that they all switched like six months later after 1945. It's very, very hard to make the case they were ideologues. They were just opportunists. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, um, maybe this is specific to those elites. Uh, but if you look at like the actual soldier class, right. there you cannot question that you, you had like just right. ridiculous levels of devotion. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but the but the but the soldier class was like sort of like <laughs> collected out of the Japanese elite. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was just thinking about this earlier, which was that one of the reasons, one of the ways you can explain this, um, uh, like why where does all this nationalistic fervor go? Is that it died in the Pacific, right? Like all all yeah. those nationalistic people were sent out to the front lines, and they were just like massacred. In some cases, like literally by their own uh, superiors. Like there's there's so many examples where. Right. Um. The 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 Japanese generals just send out their uh send out their soldiers or whatever, like yeah. a useless charge like direct charges with like suicide missions basically. I'm not talking about kamikaze. Yeah. I'm talking about like DNA charges. Um, or like, like they're, yeah, they're the, down the, and it just like the defense of uh, of Okinawa was a great example of that. More people died in that than the uh atom bombings. So right, yeah, like hundred fifty thousand in Okinawa. Yeah, hundred fifty thousand people. There's almost half the population of Okinawa. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like um, it was like very, very Bluetooth. There's a great quote uh, that uh, <laughs> uh, what was his name? The guy, you know, one of those like famous, uh, one of those legends that he was the guy in um one of these uh, Pacific Islands and he was a Japanese uh-huh. soldier and he didn't realize uh-huh. that Japan had surrendered and it was like right. decades later and he's still like killing like random civilians because he doesn't know that the Japan has surrendered and they right. like drop down leaflets and uh, and then like newspapers to like show him that oh you know Japan today this is what it looks like we've surrendered and he like yeah. still wouldn't believe it and so eventually yeah, yeah. they got him uh they got him back to Japan and like later on he wrote a book about it and he's like the reason I didn't believe uh, Japan could have surrendered is that the motto at the time was that 100 million souls will die for the empire and so um uh, uh, Japan could not have lost the war because if Japan had lost the war there would be no Japan right yeah there would <laughs> be no like, japanese left right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um uh so but, but like uh, so then but why do you think the elites were cynical do you think like the elites are generally more cynical when it comes to ideology yeah. than the average person? i mean yeah it's not like self-selects for that because to get yeah. the top you you gotta lie and you gotta move around and you gotta be within the things of the day and yeah so uh that's pretty much the main point which is that the elites knew that, that they couldn't re-militarize again. It's kind of pointless to re-militarize again to fight who? And so you can, they just basically uh, decided not to do it. But like, 
the last 10 minutes is more or less speculation from my part because I have not read into the elite mechanics of Japan before and after World War II to a good level of detail. Right. So, like, my, my kind of... Uh my kind of prior on elites is not that they're not ideological. I do agree that often their ideology is cynical, but like, well, if you look at like elites in America, for example, like I, I think many of them are like genuinely very, well, you know, like put in the, all the st- stuff you can put in the bucket of left wing. Right. But like they genuinely believe those things, right. Like in ways that are even but counterproductive it, to them. No, but it never gets passed. Right. Even they don't pass it. Like even if you, there's probably like one Senator who believes that you should nationalize the oil companies. But they never introduce it onto it. They never make the never make the the arguments for it. They never. I mean, like, there are people who are ideologically left wing. They'll just never stay elected for too long. They'll just. The thing is, the competitive nature. I mean, to whatever extent it's competitive of American democracy forces you to temper your your views, and the only way to get ahead is you were the public, broadly defined ones. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, to bring it back to Hirohito, um, one thing, um, one thing that I found like very interesting, very confusing is how this guy got so much fucking adoration, because you know, you, physically he was not so imposing. Um, interpersonally, he was not that charismatic uh, from what, what it seems. Like he, he just wasn't that uh, uh communicative. Um, he wasn't like his grandfather Meiji. Uh, you can. There's a actually funny picture of him on the internet where you can see uh, him next to MacArthur. Uh, you know the the general that was in charge of occupying Japan after the war. And you know, like MacArthur is like two feet taller than him. It, 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 like he looks like a midget in comparison to MacArthur. Um, like, so, yeah, yeah. So like, I, I don't understand. Like, how are all these like super right wing militaristic guys uh, and the entire nation really like? they're they're willing to like die for the empire you know I, I, the, the, one of the things that like really made him not like him was uh not like hirohito was uh, w- w- when the book is talking about how these uh japanese soldiers are you know like the, the last few years of the war that they knew that japan was going to lose the reason that these japanese soldiers are dying is so that w- the idea is instead of an unconditional surrender we'll try to like uh we'll try to show the uh, the west that we can we can basically sustain um, we, we can basically sustain this kind of uh, uh, war for a long time, even if we're going to lose. And so if you want to avoid this, we won't do an unconditional surrender. And the purpose of that was so, well, one of the purposes of that was so that to make sure that in this unconditional, in the conditional surrender, rather, that Hirohito is not tried as a war criminal. Like that's, that's one of the things that these, uh, you know, like these millions of, what was it, more than a, how many, 1.5 million, no, 3 million Japanese died, but 1.5 million of Japanese died in the last year of the war. Yeah. Um, and the, the, a lot of them died so that the the emperor wouldn't be tried as a war criminal, right? Uh, yeah. Like I, I don't know the, the the idea that he could have stopped the war earlier, or at least potentially could have stopped the war earlier, yeah. and he didn't. And these people Why are just dying he... for him uh, in his name. So, I, I, I didn't. Yeah, the people who aren't dying in his name. There's this great. Uh, I don't know. You you should read the other book, which which is uh Japan. So let me find it. Japan prepares for yeah. The book is titled. Uh, Japan prepares for total war, okay? The thing is, nobody thought the emperor was God. He thought he was God-like. But it's not like, he, he, he was like a, uh, it's easier to, to imagine for Hindus, I guess. He was a God-like figure. He's, a, he's not God. And they, they sort of saw him as their moral leader, right? The first thing is that they were dying, they, they went into war because the army paid a lot of money. It was a lot better than being in declining Japanese firms at the time. Commodity was pretty low. 
So uh, they didn't have much of a thing. They didn't have much of things to do otherwise, you know. Uh, also interesting, uh, the first original, the first public health system in Japan was encouraged by the military because they would saw all their conscripts being so undernourished and uh, ill that they're like, oh, we can't solve this on a military level. We have to have a uh, systemic response to this, okay? The second thing is really that um, why did they die for the emperor? A lot of them believed it, and so they, they died for it. Why did they believe it for such an unconvincing persona? Because he was not a politician. He was his persona. His, his stature derived from the fact that he was the descendant of the gods. So, you know, it's, 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 it's not a charisma thing. In authoritarian systems, people don't derive their power from the consent of the governed. They derive it from something else. In this case, something else was, I'm the descendant of the, of the sun goddess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, doesn't that contradict what you said earlier, where you said the workers didn't believe that he was like a literal deity or the descendant? Yeah, yeah. No, no. He didn't believe. Okay, see, there's a godlike figure and there's a god. So the sun goddess, her name starts with A. I forgot it. She's the god, but he's a godlike figure. Right. So you. No. Yeah, but, yeah so, but I, 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 no, I mean, I understand that. I, I, I guess it kind of feels like semantics to me. But uh, no, like, it, 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 it wouldn't be semantics. Like, I mean, if it if it was semantics, they shouldn't have been happy about the surrender. Uh, but, but, but many of them weren't, right? No, no, but a large portion of the Japanese public were just meh. Okay, fine, move on now. Which there is a okay, so let, let, me, let me put you in like very economics terms. There's a uh, there's a, a reservation prize they have for a god, and they have a there's a reservation prize they have for a godlike figure. And for the godlike figure, the reservation prize was, was pretty low, it was two years of starvation. Which for a god, two years, I mean, look at the look at the like they weren't prepared to fight the um, Americans for very long. If Hirohito was a real god figure, they they would have been prepared to fight him for fight the Americans and British for much longer. Yeah, okay. I guess my point, my original point, is that because they believed him to be a godlike figure, yeah, they, uh, they made many sacrifices for him as a person, as an individual person, yeah, yeah, separate and apart from the sacrifices they made for Japan as a nation. Um, but 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 he was inseparable from Japan as the nation, right? Right. Oh, uh, I mean, which is another thing you can critique, though, right? Uh, but yeah, 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 too. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, like, like to 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 make it clearer, it would be it would be like they were prepared to make the initial sacrifices first because it was convenient for them to make them. You know, you, they had the Japanese economy was really really bad across the thirties, right? And the second thing was it it was sort of like a how how do I put it? So, so, sort of like a uh, not signaling, but like quasi-signaling. I'm willing to fight for the emperor, but when the fighting got bad, like ah, oh, wait, the emperor is not worth that much. It, it's okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, yeah. So let's continue talking about what happened after the war. So um, uh, you probably know much more about the post-war economy in Japan than I do. I actually know close to nothing about it, except for um, there is uh, Mansur Olsen very famously uh, explained why Japan and Germany had. Uh, growth rates that were so high after the war and were able to catch up relatively fast. 
is his claim, uh, I mean, bringing back public choice theory, his claim was all these factions that accumulate in democracies were abolished in uh, abolished in the war. And so they basically got a fresh start without all this accumulative crudge. And because of that, they had extremely high growth rates. And, you know, as you know, in the 1980s, um, they, you, there were fears like Japan's economy would like overtake America's. Um, and in fact, if they had, didn't have a population collapse, uh, you know, who, who knows what would have happened. But yeah, more or less correct. All the uh, intergroups were destroyed. So they could, I mean, actually, all the intergroups weren't destroyed. They were just replaced with better ones. Their intergroups are bad, but they're good intergroups and bad intergroups. And it's sort of like the Japanese, the new in, in, in intergroups in Japan were the bureaucrats who ran the trade industry. I haven't, I know, I know a little about it, it's not too much, but. There are a few big things here, right? One of the problems the Americans saw in Japan was that, uh, well, there were too many, the biggest interest group was these Zaibatsus, the uh, Japanese conglomerates that you know, liked the war because it gave demand for their goods. They, they, they tried to break them up, okay? And here's where the intersection between that and the new Japanese industrial policy comes. The Americans put a sort of like an FTC thing where they said, you know, you're going to get too big and otherwise this commissioner is going to, sue you in court and the court is going to be independent and the, and the prime minister can drive the judge and whatever, okay? The thing is, the Japanese kept the uh, form of this antitrust law, but just made enough loopholes in it for it to be like, yeah, we have antitrust law, but and we have a trade commissioner, but nobody enforces it because you know, it's, 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 it's convenient not to. And then, so the Japanese economy changed. They, they sort of used these previous zaibatsus they, they they formed themselves into kiritsus, which is you know probably just a more financialized version of a zai, uh, of a zaibatsu. And then they uh, so for for listeners who don't know, a zaibatsu was just this huge conglomerate that emerged in Japan over the nineteen the or the nineteen hundreds that was one of the biggest um, uh, it, it was one of the, one of the entities that benefited the most from the war because they were mining and industrial ones and wars require a lot of mining and industry, so they, they made a lot of money. And they, the Americans tried to break up the, the Zaibatsus, but like almost all the Zaibatsus still exist today in the, in the form of Kiritsus. And the Kiritsu guys get really mad when you ask them about it, because they, they don't want to be associated with the with the rape of Nanking. They want to be associated with nice Toyota cars, okay? So that's the thing that the Japanese post-war economy was very much influenced by the fact that the, the the Americans were semi incompetent at breaking down these Zaibatsu. They just reemerged re again. Uh, standard economic growth theory tells you when you have a lot of broken buildings, uh, it's it's very easy to repair them back to where you got. So that's where a, a, a lot of the initial growth came from. But, but and then, but uh, sorry, uh, maybe you were going there anyways. But there's almost a super compensatory compensatory me mechanism here where it's like you you damage the thing to get more benefit than you would. Have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, I mean, obviously, it is suboptimal. Uh, it is obviously worse than not damaging them. But once you you damage them, like it's it's not like Bastia's broken windows thing, right? If you if you break the the windows, it in, it increases consumption. And Bastia's like, but it increases consumption here. But you know, they're gonna spend the money on something else, and those guys are hurt. I'm like, yeah, that's true. And the same thing over here. Yeah, obviously. I'm making the opposite point. Uh, then, where that the the damage, uh, counterfactually speaking, in the long term, the damage actually causes a benefit uh, in the long term because uh, you're getting rid of these uh, special interest groups that would have uh, tampered growth for a long time. Yeah, probably, but I I mean yes, 
but also no, because especially in this group in Japan didn't really disappear. I mean, yes, in the sense that the bad ones went and slightly better ones came up, which is true, but that should not be your main explanation because a lot of Japanese growth in the 50s which, which, which was just catch up. The, the, the rebuilding, the broken buildings, and the bomb cities and burned houses. So, partly through is my is is my Snopes fact check rating. No, and the other thing is like, uh, Japanese industrial policy was very much a feature of the war. Without the war, you wouldn't have had this level of government control of the economy, which led to a higher level of uh, how do I put it? A higher level of uh, planning. I don't think planning is the right word. It's too many connotations of but basically they got export-driven growth because of this, because of they had uh, lots of social capital between the planners and the uh, company executives, and it's really easy for them to say, okay, I'll give you a few uh, billion yen. You're gonna use this to sell cars in the US. But in three years, if you if your cars don't sell well enough, you're gonna shut down and, and, and merge with your rival who will be more successful. So that was one of the uh, drivers of Japanese growth. Like that's one of the reasons why the Kiritsus and the uh, industry and the industrial policy systems existed. So that's one of the parts of growth after the war. And also having trade with America just makes you better off for the obvious reason that Americans are rich and they buy a lot of your stuff. Right. Yes. Um, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This was a very, very interesting. Uh, this was extremely interesting. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I'm really glad we did this. I, I, I hope we do this with more books because this was actually like a very good way to. Yeah. And you, you, you happen to know a lot about the tangential topic, so this is, um, it's very useful. Um, Super fun I, I, for me. I don't too. know if you feel. Uh, is there anything else we're talking about uh, with regards to uh, Japan and um, uh, Hirohito? Or no, nothing else. I'm, I'm probably hitting some edge of my knowledge in like one more question. So let's not go there. <laughs> okay um all right so if we're done with that topic i guess we can talk about uh general things uh which is that uh we're kind of doing uh similar things at least for the time being i guess yep. uh you're, you're doing it up, uh i guess we're both doing it part-time uh so like it, you're what, what's your age i'm 18 i don't 18 last october okay so i mean how are you structuring your reading writing what podcast oh man man like, oh my god <laughs> Okay, so uh, mornings in when I travel, I get a lot of my Twitter time done, right? Because Twitter is like my biggest source of things that go on. It's not a good source, but it's my good source. So uh, yeah, uh, how I structure my reading right now? Uh, I think a lot of my reading is I go for I go for deep dives in books. I was doing Japan, so I read Hirohito. I read uh, Ambition Defeat. I read Japan Prepares for Total War. I read Mark Harrison's The Economics of World War II. Uh, not a very de- detailed book, but a very good book in terms of the statistics it, it, it gives you, right? So I'm going to do that, and I'd, I'd like to have my stuff um, to combine. So learning data visualization in Python, so I'm going to do that with a bunch of World War II economic numbers. So like I both like learn how to use the very difficult Matplotlib and, you know, <laughs> this and that. Uh, a lot of my reading is ad hoc. I have this set of PDFs I read, which is uh, a lot of time just spend staring at my phones. So I just it's, it's it's second nature. A lot of my writing is a lot more difficult to structure because first because it it requires a level of calm that I usually don't get apart from weekends. So that that is much harder. 
And as per your question of how do I get my, my reading, uh, all the usual sources, the listeners of this podcast will know Marginal Revolution, Econ Log. Uh, I, I, read, I read a lot of Rohit Krishnan, Matt, Matt Clifford. I read a lot of, I don't know, uh, Les Dog, E.A. Fullerman, please, and Astral Codex 10. But really, a lot of my uh, stuff comes from just going through the bibliographies of books I like to read. So that is where a good, so luckily, uh, don't pirate books. Pirating books is bad, but yeah, <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the cheapest way for, for, for most people. So basically that. Um, what else? I think being in the thing gives me a better sense of ideas when I get to talk to other people. My biggest source of like things I, I should work on is talking to people like you or other people or um, other things. I also have a lot of time staring at a wall doing nothing because of the nature of my work. That gives me a lot of time to contemplate. Finally, I'm, I'm applying to college, so I have to, you know, figure out how to legibly, how to make my achievements legible to a college uh, admissions person. So a lot of my time goes around doing that. Yeah. What are your long-term plans? I, I, I nerd. What are my long-term plans? I have no long-term. Okay, I have a long-term plan. Trust me. Okay. <laughs> Are you, are you going for computer science to go to college? I'll probably. So my next thing is, okay, computer science is, is a compromise because it's the, I want to do CS, I want to do like econ related, econ plus like quant related things. The best end of that in Singapore is computer science plus econ because computer, because the government puts a lot of money into computer science and I might as, as well add econ because it's my interest. So yeah, CS plus econ at, at NUS is what I'm aiming for. I already got accepted for CS there. I'll be applying to the UK with my, because, okay, let me go, let me tell you one thing. The, uh, for all that I like to criticize America, the British are infinitely worse. <laughs> so uh, British uh, college courses haven't changed since like 1970 something. In America, you can pick and choose your, your major. In Singapore, you can get a lesser extent. But in Britain, you, you've had the same courses since 1620, I guess. And the big problem is no courses there. I'm looking for LSE, math, and econ, if I can get in and I find and I find a part of money somewhere. Oh, wait, wait, have you not already with the Emergence Ventures grant? Or I, it's I, like I, yeah, yeah the, it, it, college in the UK costs like two hundred thousand Singapore dollars. I regrettably my wallet's in my pocket. I don't have two hundred thousand Singapore dollars there. <laughs> okay. so for for American listeners, that's like one eighty thousand USD or something on, on that range. But honestly, I would not be surprised if you were somehow able to, uh, if you managed to somehow pull off like sponsorships and grants, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. enough to like uh, sustain yourself. So um, if I was like more into it, I I would do macro econ and, and make my newsletter pay. Is is kind of obvious? Like even like five hundred bucks a month makes my life super easy. So right. <laughs> yeah, but that would be like if if and when I finish my current um, how do I put it? Self-imposed military time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, well, by the way, what is the topic you're reading about now? I'm doing a bunch of, I mean, I'm not reading about this. I, I knew about it before, but, but I'm writing about the US dollar reserve system, like, like a primer. I tweeted about it yesterday. It's like, why do countries hold US dollar reserves? And the answer is, uh, they hold US dollar reserves because central banks like to use dollar reserve for insurance reasons. Like, wait, why do central banks need US dollars for, for insurance? The answer is uh, US the US dollar is the main currency used in trade. So it is really, really important to have it 
in case your currency d- depreciates too much or uh, appreciates too much, then you, know, you can sell it and, and get USD. The other reason is that the number one source of, of uh, financial crises for developing countries in last few years, in last few decades has been, we need dollars to pay our dollar debts. We don't have enough dollars. So uh, we're broke. And central banks keep it for that very specific insurance reason of uh, financial crises. And next comes the question, well, why can't the renminbi or the, like what's normally called the, the yuan replace this? The answer is nobody use it for trade. Nobody use it for trade because you can't use it outside China, the capital controls. So like, wait, till China takes out its capital controls, we can't do it? Yeah, pretty much. Next question comes, why can't we use Bitcoin? The answer is, you would be very crazy to structure international trade with Bitcoin. You know, it's too volatile. Sorry, next month your, your price doubles and your, and, your, and your income doubles and debt cost doubles. So it's never going to happen. And most importantly, Bitcoin is a risk asset. You can't use it as insurance. When your NASDAQ falls 10%, Bitcoin falls 25%. The US dollar falls like 1.5% or, or, or even goes up. So you can't really do that. That's like my current um, writing. But this, as of 2020th March, it's, it's going to change as and when I find interesting things to write about. Now, I have a question for you. What is one good thing I should be doing, but I'm not doing? Um, I don't know what you're doing, so I'm not sure. I, I told you what I'm doing. I'm just I'm just writing about it now. Okay. That's all I'm doing. Um, the, the answer to that question is probably something I should be doing as well. Um, it, it sounds like you have been on the side, like just uh, doing some computer science from what I've talked to you separately about. So yeah. Um, if you're doing that anyways, yeah, that's fine. I, one thing that I haven't done enough, but like when I have done it, it's been like super useful and like, is just that uh, if I just randomly network with people over Twitter or something, if I just uh-huh. like just send them a Calendly link or something, uh-huh. and it, it, you just like learn, oh, this person is like way more, um, is just like way more connected than I, I thought he was. Yeah. Like he, he's just super interesting. Um, that has led to some really, uh, really cool. Things. Super fun, yeah. I I average not including this like one Zoom call a week with like friends and 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 weeks before I'm free. I make it to like five or seven. It's, it's very, very fun. More people should should do it. It's it's my cheat code to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and what is one thing I should be doing that I'm not doing? I think you should scale this up very much. What is your estimate of your of your impact via podcast versus writing? Um, roughly zero both ways. By impact, do you mean the audience or? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, 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 how much, like, vaguely defined? How uh, do you think your podcast gives you more impact or your writing? I mean, I think they're both like zero impact. As far as like impact, doesn't I don't know, like improving the world in some way. No, I mean, for impact on you, like a very oh, crude oh, approximation oh. is views. But uh, I, 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 for for time spent, uh, like how much I'm learning and so on. I think uh, writing probably I'm learning more than I'm doing learning podcasting. Yeah, I think it depends on the guest. So, I, 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 what did you mean when you said scale it up a way more? Okay, what would a uh, self-sustaining lunar society podcast look like? Self-sustaining meaning like uh, you could work on this full time without any outside capital. Uh, it would have to be way more regular, and it would have to be way more broadly appealing. Yeah. That's- that sucks because broadly appealing stuff is almost always dumbed down. So, right. I mean, like nobody well, can do broadly appealing. So, yeah. yeah. My my friend I don't know. just recently discussing this, like you know Lex Freeman's podcast. Yeah. Uh, like he's clearly a very smart good. guy, 
but uh, at least in his whatever his uh, research area is, like he must be right, or at least I'm told so. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but yeah, you you can clearly see uh, that to reach his million subscribers or whatever. And this is not to just like um, this is not just to take copium by the spoonful, but right. uh, but there is a to a. But I mean, by definition, to appeal to the majority of the population, you have to appeal to midwits, right? By definition, yeah. what a midwit is. Um, and uh, I, there are exceptions to this, right? Like, for example, there's conversation with Tyler, which actually does appeal to a lot of people, um, and it's not midwitted. That's um, right. But he started off with a lot of social capital. So you can't compare that. No, that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> I, it, like, in my case, it's, it ended up being the case that the money you make, like, you make... I could like start a Patreon or something, but it would be like so much less money than just like random grants people offer you. Uh, yeah, which, right, which right, is like right. very nice of them, like, extremely, extremely nice of them, and uh, uh, I'm very grateful for it. And then they, like, um, and that, that is like that, that's orders of magnitude more than I could make if I had a Patreon. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I think like an easier way of this is uh, I'm gonna plug in my friend Fish Coopchum here, who has this. Very cool thing called a, I, I don't know if you heard, it's called a learning public offering, where you tell people, <laughs> I'm going I'm, I'm to I'm learn about this, and six, and six, six months later, later, I will teach you everything you need to know about this, and I'll, I'll have Zoom call with you, I'll give you an NFT, or whatever your preferred model is, and you basically say, you pay me enough money to cover some part of my expenses now, and we can, and six months later, I'll, I'll teach you everything you need to know. And if you're popular enough, you would probably do that. It's it's like open source should work. Like I said, it, it doesn't, but it, so it sounds like a model of how these things should work. And another easier way is to have, uh, it, it's much easier if you do on the econ like I do, where I, 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 I can just have an econ newsletter focusing on normie things like where will interest rates go next month and what does that mean for stocks and have the, a better newsletter doing things I, I like to do. So very, uh, I know how to put it. The other thing, like more people, my emergent is an application. Like the thing that I found most strongly about, more people should do company level analyses. So I am because it one it pays, and two because it's uh, underrated by econs and overrated by stock people. And I consider you're very much in more econ than stock person. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think is very very useful to sort of like uh, commercialize it. Dumb it down, class subsidize your intellectual pursuits by the uh, commercial part. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 the thing is, I, I don't think I want to do the intellectual pursuits thing as a main thing for my career. Um, so it's not, and I, I don't need like a lot of money. I don't, I, it's not like I, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I need the I need to make the rent this month or something. So um, I, I think it would just make more sense for me to like not worry that much about monetization of this kind of stuff, and then just make my money as a software engineer or like whatever else I decide to do. Right. Um, True. Yeah. So, uh, but there's there's a separate question about uh, like having because. I think the much harder question is like, how do you actually be a good public intellectual? Right, public intellectual is like a kind of cringe word to use, but you know what I mean, right? Like, how do you actually yeah. uh, produce content that's original and interesting, especially when Probably. you're young like us, where you don't have that much life experience or just general knowledge about the world? 
uh, probably in intellectual exchange, but a thought leader is worse. You'll need to do what you said. Yeah. You, uh, the first thing is if you do a bad job, you'll come to know pretty obviously. Like every time I post my mind's bad, it gets like low engagement. People are like, yeah, it's man. I'm like, oh, that sucks. But <laughs> you, you come to know that obviously. The second thing is to uh, have a circle of competence and be great at it. So you, you, you can be. I've a, I've a, I've a friend so who, who's friends with the guy who's ex, who's the ex. You, you know who Zoltan Kosar? Do you? Who? Uh, he's a former New York Fed guy who works at I don't know Fed Swiss or Deutsche Bank now, where he knows every single thing about Fed plumbing. So how do uh in how do excess reserve gets get transported? Uh, where how do such the bond deals happen, etc. etc. He knows every single thing about that. And if you want to be a good public intellectual, a public or whatever it is, whatever your, your placement for that word is, you yeah. be very, very good at one thing and draw on your credibility from there. It's not very hard. If you're coding, it is not. It is very easy to demonstrate your competence at something. Just you know, build something cool, and people are like, oh, this is really interesting. You proof of work. But if you are writing or speaking. It is much harder. It is obviously an open problem, but my, I mean, a podcast is 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 like one way of demonstrating your creative because people you people whom other people respect say, "Oh, I like talking to you for one hour. We should do this again." I'm like, "Oh, super cool!" But the other like, you have to basically somehow build a proof of work and show it to people. My answer to that is do econ stuff people like, and at some point of time, if possible, monetize it, which. Only works if your thing is commercially oriented. So I can't do a history of the gold standard. That's that sucks. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but even even like you, the proof of work thing. I, I I mean, you could say that the proof of work is like the amount of engagement you get. But I've noticed in like things I've gotten a lot of engagement on, even when it's like on a specific topic. Like for example, I have like some post on like talent that got some attention, right? right. Um, on like spotting talent. And I, I could tell you that I, I know less about spotting talent than like the median uh, manager at a Best Buy, right? I, I know close to nothing about uh, uh, finding talent. And, you know, you can have blog posts that get attended. I'm not saying that like, you know, they got viral and anything, but they did get like one of them was on the Marginal Revolution. Um, right. And so like, uh, that's another thing that kind of makes me skeptical about the value of being a public intellectual in the first place is that like, I actually generally don't know uh, anything about practically identifying talent. But then you can get you can like just put out these like sort of insight porn things and you, you get get attention and I, I don't know what kind of value that's generating for the world or you know what I oh, mean. No, I I agree, but I also joke to my friends that 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 among our circle I'm the best at evaluating talent because all my Twitter mutuals end up getting famous. So <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So like, on the object level issue. Uh, it doesn't matter because you're not, you know, you're not, you're not selling your bishops to fish. You're selling it to to fishermen. But on the <laughs> uh, on the meta level, um, the thing with writing about 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 like these sort of general things is that nobody knows how to how to do it unless you have thirty years of of experience. So like, don't worry about it. If they if they liked it, you can do it. Okay. The the, the second thing is people. Are not appreciating your object level thing on talent. That's okay. They, nobody's going to make you the uh, head of McKinsey's recruiting thing. The, there's a very big difference in knowing something, in, in doing something, and being able to explain it. 
and your like um it's okay i think your person talent or like anything you write about barbell about the barbell uh strategy the value you provide to people is not the barbell strategy it is explaining it in ways they can understand i'm sure i'm sure they knew it right everyone has the idea that like this month i'm going to be super fit and next six months i'm going to do nothing everybody, everybody has that those things but the point is giving it some sort of form and structure yeah you know it's kind of funny on that post in particular because it was it was just like hanging out in my google drive i i, I think i'd written it uh like a few weeks or months ago it was just like a, almost like a throwaway thing uh, where oh, yeah, like, yeah. uh I, was, these things could seem kind of like barbell strategies and then uh and it compared to like other posts where i've like put in way more effort it was just it was literally just kind of a throwaway right but yeah. then um but then yeah he said something very nice about my blog but he but he used that uh blog post as like the thing to retweet to like say the nice thing about the blog and so now this this like random blog post has like 150 likes or something and it, it was just like a throwaway thing right like a lot of and these other ones are i like spent a lot more effort on they're like five likes you know yeah yeah I know, <laughs> yeah I know, yeah, I know. yeah. Uh, Super. Yeah, but, you know, applied to said, uh, you know that blogger, by the way, applied to Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had a similar yeah, point where he's like talking about, um, he, he just goes through like how many subscribers he has, a graph, and he's like, you see these big jumps? They're not like posts I spend a lot of effort on or something. They're just posts that happen to get featured on MR. Um, yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you like my answer is like, I, I, I shouldn't be worrying too much about distribution. I mean, the question is, if you, is it like one part of me is like, oh, maybe I could, I, I, because, well, every single time I read financial news, I'm like, no, I could improve on this. I could, I, I, I could, I could do a 5x better job at explaining this. Because I know a lot of financial journalists and they're like, yeah, the, the, the job requires me to dumb things down. I'm like, no, no, you could do an intelligent one. I'm like, yeah. So every time I see these sort of things, I realize that you have a pretty clear trade-off between writing, I, I put it in a different way. When you grow on the internet, your audience shapes you as much as you shape them. So it is important not to write too many stupid things that go viral because you will be incentivized to write stupid things that go viral. You have to play that that meta game of not writing stupid viral things. And so like I refuse sometimes to write about popular things because I don't want to, I, 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 don't, I don't want it to go viral. It is, it is, a, it is, a, it is a liability than an asset because it's going to be stupid. And I'm going to be known as, as, the, as the guy who did, the, who, who did this, which is like, people say I'm wrong, but they say, you know, any, any attention is good attention or something like that. But I'm like, no, it's, you've got to be known for the right thing. So I don't know how to deal with that. I deal with it with not, with, with forcing myself to not put stupid things that go viral. I mean, your viral strategy post wasn't stupid things that went viral, but I know that you know that you can have stupid things that, that go viral. Don't do it. <laughs> I've done it myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Or they didn't go viral exactly, but they, they were stupid. They, they ended up being a little more popular than my uh, more thoughtful things. Um, yeah. So what is your uh, long-term plan as far as like the intellectual stuff goes? Like, are you planning on keeping up the blog and podcast? Or... I am, I am. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. At least for the next two years. At least till August 2023, hmm. I will keep doing this. And then it's like, I'll be, I'll be in college then. Like, it depends on the amount, of, on the amount of free time I have. And I'll probably keep it because it's my only way of socializing with people. So yeah, it better stay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so you have, you have like um, a surprising amount of leeway in like, I guess in my experience in like at least U.S. college, it's just like 
Um, if you want to spend like uh, 60 hours a week on your college work, you can. If you want to spend 20 hours, you can. And the difference is not going to be, uh, or maybe Massive, like, yeah. like, maybe there's maybe a smaller gradient, but th th there's ways to compress the amount of time you have to spend in college so you can work on the other stuff. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I want to go to the UK for the fact that one, you have pretty short time, you have a lot more free time. And two, I find it very humiliating to describe my entire life story to get into college. I'm sorry, please just 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 ask me why why do math and 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 and, and let me in. <laughs> right. No, no, no. <laughs> it, it, the, 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 they're asking you to be cynical. And when they ask those like that, you know, vague questions about like, oh, well, yeah, to, to tell us about what led, led you to this point in life. Where are you, where are you applying here? And what, what is your life story? It's like, <laughs> well, you know, but the, the honest answer is you have a lot of, you, you have a strong credential and I want that strong credential, right? But you're, the answer is I like money. Buy, so here, okay, here we go. Yeah. Here's like, yeah, I, I was know. born. Yeah. Dad says, I like money, and you're my nicest bastard part of getting that, and right. nobody likes that, and and so I don't like the selection effect of selecting for people who can lie well. It's not, it's not going to end up well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like, on a, on a model level, I, I refuse to, to engage in it. Well, did you not apply? Like, what, what did you do for those kinds of questions? Uh, I'm going to apply this September, so I'll find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, also, like, I optimized my life in high school for doing things I like. I, I was a guy who was in lunch and sitting in the corner with six books, and I read six books a week. So, <laughs> I, I, I wish I'd done that because, like, I, I in middle school, like, my mom was convinced I needed to become an Eagle Scout or like become a Boy Scout in order to, like, yeah, I know. I, I'm like, and I pretty much fed off all those kids. Like, no, I can't play a tabla, I can't play the piano. I've, 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 I've probably skills. Please, no, no, no. Just being incompetent at everything else is a, is a good auntie keeping your time. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, because I, 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 like what you ended up doing in uh, high school, I ended up doing in college. So if I had to, basically, you had like a four, three or four year, I'm 21 year 18, so three year advantage uh, on me in terms of this stuff, right? Um, yeah. Which I, which I wish I'd just done earlier. Um, uh, no, that's okay. You have a lot of time, a lot more than longevity works. Yes, yes. Let's hope for that. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be taking some kind of drug right now, like metformin or something. To, yeah, I, I, uh, I think yeah. of that, but it's like kind of awkward and justified of a pharmacist. They're like, this is a controlled drug. I'm like, yeah, I know. Uh, like, do you have diabetes? Not exactly. What do you want it? Uh, why do they set in time that he takes it? And it's just, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So... That's okay. I, my answer is to just run a lot and do weights and eat and eat healthy and whatever. Right, which I think I'm doing uh, to at least yeah. some sort of reasonable extent. Um, yeah, dude, Radio, this was really interesting uh, and fun. I mean, uh, Me if, if there's a, uh, I'll keep a track on your Twitter and see what you're reading. And if there, what, what, uh, another title comes up that I find interesting, um, yeah. maybe we can do this again. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'd love to do it. Yep, yep. Awesome, man. All Thanks right. a lot for your time. See you. See you. Bye. Yeah. Oh, hey, hold up. Sorry, sorry. Before we go, uh, just to plug your stuff again. So you're on Twitter. Your um, your handle, and uh, you know, obviously, this will be in the um, this will be in the description. Yeah, it's at Pradeep Prasad. Okay, and then with the P, both P's in capital. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter. Really. Oh, it doesn't. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, and then um, and then the uh, bread and goods. That's with two T's. Uh, dot Substack. Dot com. Um, and the same name for the bread and goods podcast. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you've had some pretty notable guests on, right? So Matt Clifford, Bern Hobart, um, and yep. others. Um, they're definitely worth checking out. I highly recommend. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, yep. Awesome, man. Uh, yeah, thanks for your time.
थैंक यू बाय